0: Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. So good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. Uh, We're going to take one last trip through this famous parable of Jesus in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And I want to take one more look at the elder brother in the story before we leave because he is the lesson. Uh, If you've not been here, that's one of the things we've been laboring to say. There's something really off with this character of the older brother who comes at the very end of the chapter. There's a serious spiritual sickness to his soul, which if we go back and read from the beginning to where he's introduced in chapter 15, which is what we're going to try to do this morning, uh, I think it'll, you'll see. You'll see how the rhythm is broken with him. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 15, we're going to read just from selected verses uh, it's printed there for you, but in order to not just spend the next 10 minutes reading, I, I kind of cut and pasted a little bit, so forgive me for that. It's printed for you in the worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me as well. Um, and so follow along if we, as we read this together, okay? Again, one more time from Luke chapter 15. Now, Jesus told, that now, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. So verses 1 and 2 are the occasion for the parable, which is a parable in three parts. Verse 3, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven... Over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, righteous persons, who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Now notice the parallels here to what was just said, saying, Rejoice Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there will be joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then comes a story about a father with two boys. And we pick up the story kind of midway through. The younger of the boys came to his father saying, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And the father divided the property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had had and took a journey into a far country... And there he squandered his property in reckless living, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. In other words, just like the sheep, and just like the coin, he had become lost. In verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. He said to him, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is now alive again and he was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate, which is what they've been doing all throughout Luke 15, right? And they began to celebrate. And then in the very next verse, we're introduced to this other character. Now his older son, was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing but he was angry and he refused to go in this is the word of the lord Henry now and meditating on his own elder brotherishness and i told you that book uh, you really should get it i can't get away from it as we walk walk through this but he wrote this and you have the quote there because it's so good and it's so to the point of what i think we need to talk about this morning before we leave this parable Uh, Here are his meditations. He says, I've tried diligently to be good. There was always a conscious effort to avoid the pitfalls of sin and the constant fear of giving in to temptation. But with all of that came a seriousness, a moralistic intensity, even a touch of fanaticism that made it increasingly difficult to feel at home in my father's house. I became less free, less spontaneous, less playful. And others came to see me more and more as a somewhat heavy person. That's what I want to talk about this morning. It's a good description of the older brother here. Uh, and when I read it so many years ago in reading that book, I recognized myself in Nowen's words. Uh, and I recognized many of the people that I was doing church with that called themselves Christians. So in full disclosure, I am this elder brother. Just so you know, if you don't know me very well, I mean, I, I've never been not for one second of my life the younger brother. And, and my dad and Jonathan are probably two people who know me the best in the room, and they're laughing their heads off because they know that to be true. I am the oldest of two. I'm the firstborn of two firstborns. So I have never had, and, and one of the things now one writes about is how resentful the elder brother type people can be of the younger brother type people because it looks like fun. I have never had that experience. Every day, for as long as I can remember, I've been slaving away, trying to do the right thing which is why I suppose I'm so fascinated by uh, this this character. So I'm talking to myself here, but I'm also talking to you because, and here's something I think we have to wrestle with. Christianity, in many circles, seems to produce people like this. And that's a big problem. And we need a correction. And Jesus' story is the correction. So one of the things that he wants us to see here is that there's a danger in the pursuit of an obedient life and becoming the kind of person that Henri Nouwen describes there who takes himself too seriously. That's the way I'm going to say it this morning. Just, He's describing somebody who just takes himself too seriously. And it's a sign of spiritual health that you learn and that you can learn just not to take yourself so seriously. To learn to laugh at yourself and even at your sin. Because you know even your sin is no match for God's grace. Uh, and so, so that you know how this preaching thing works though... Um, This week was kind of chaotic for me and other kinds of things. So the sermon's a mess this morning. I went home and told Ash, gosh, the sermon's a mess. She says, Really? How do you know? I said, I've been doing it long enough to know it's a mess. Okay? (laughs) And I'm a mess because here's how this preaching thing works Uh, I'm having to fight through taking myself so seriously as I'm telling you, you shouldn't take yourself so seriously. That's the struggle of my heart this morning, okay? And so I'm just telling you, it's going to be a mess. Uh, so come back next week. It'll be better. I promise. But we got to deal with this. And here's the question I want us to wrestle through this morning. Okay. Do you have heaven's joy? Do you have heaven's joy? Jesus tells us more than once that heaven is a joyful place. Do you see that? The angels throw parties when the gospel moves forward in a person's life. Heaven is a place of unending celebration of freedom and hilarity and wonder. And eternal life, according to Jesus in John chapter 17, is knowing God or knowing God to be like the Father in this story. So, the person who knows that they're loved, like these boys are loved, well, I mean, what words would you use to describe them? Not not, carefree, not heavy, not, you know, serious and overbearing, safe, carefree, light, hair trigger celebrators. Tied to an easy yoke, Matthew 11, not what you get in the older brother and his type, intense, finger-wagging, serious, and so forth. And so we're going to use the word joy, Uh, and I, I wish, but really, because it's easy, but we mean something far more expansive. What we're going to talk about this morning is this emotional reaction that we see in the Father upon The return of his son. What words would you use to describe him? that would be a great exercise for you to kind of go through, even at the beginning of the sermon here. What words really come to mind for you? Uh, Because that's what we're after. And what you see is he is the anti-older brother. And the older brother is the anti-father. And the question being asked of us is, which one is true of you? And so whatever word you would use, I'm going to use the word joy. I want you to see, or celebration, I guess, maybe we could use the word. So I want to see three things as we just kind of take a look at this older brother one more time. I want you to see in him... First, the absence of celebration, or the absence of joy, because it's really striking how it happens in Luke 15. Secondly, I want you to see that the, 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 the passage teaches us the real occasion for joy. In other words, if Christianity is a life of, of joy and celebration, the reason it is. And then thirdly, there's a unique expression of, of joy and celebration that we see here. And so, I want you to see that we should be celebrating, and why we should be celebrating, and specifically how we should be celebrating from this text. Okay? so first, let's look again at the absence of joy. So this older brother, it's the reason we read from the whole chapter again. He really stands out against the flow of the entire chapter. The older brother doesn't fit with the rest of Luke 15, because Luke 15 is a series of three parables. And as we saw in the first, there's a lost sheep, and the shepherd goes out seeking it. And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulder, and then picking up in verse 5 again, rejoicing, he comes home and calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for i found my sheep that was lost and then comes jesus's editorial comment there in verse seven just so i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who are righteous who need no repentance and then the very next parable it's the same thing a woman has 10 coins 10 some silver coins and loses one she begins to seek for the lost coin and when she finds it same thing she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for i've found the coin that i lost and then Jesus repeats the same lesson because he knows how hard our hearts are to these truths, okay? So he repeats it again. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we get the story about the lost son who's a big sinner and who repents, who comes home. And we already know that when this happens, what happens in heaven? Heaven starts to party. and So the, father, so the son's father does too. He does exactly what the other two have done. He calls all the friends and neighbors together and says, Come celebrate with me. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and let's celebrate. Because as we've already learned, that's the right response. All the way down at the end of the chapter, it's, it was fitting. The father, father calls the friends and neighbors together. And verse 24, they begin to celebrate. And really, if you've read the entire chapter, you expect the chapter to end there. But it doesn't. Because in the very next verse, we're introduced to this older brother. And his response is not joy the way it was for the shepherd and the way that it was for the woman and the way that it was for the father. Verse 28 says it's the opposite. He was angry, and he refused to go in. And just like that, it's like all of the joy and celebration stops. Have you ever met a person like that? who can walk into a party, and they just suck up all the joy like a sponge. That's this boy. And as you read the whole, whole thing together, you can't help but think, man, something, that's not, that isn't right. Something's wrong there with the way that he is approaching his life. And that's the first point I'd like to make, is that his anger and his finger wagging and his scolding his brother and his scolding of the father, by the way, it doesn't fit. And the lesson is, is that... Jesus' gospel, Jesus' life and mission and the message that comes out of it, Christianity shouldn't be producing people like that. It should be producing people unlike that. People who rejoice, hair-trigger celebrators. And so, the second thing we see is that Luke 15 is full of rejoicing. So the older brother doesn't fit with the rest of the chapter. It was fitting to celebrate, the father says at the end, but he can't because something's gone terribly wrong with him. And and so if you see this kind of serious, intense, heavy absence of joy in someone or in yourself, what you need to know is it's like a warning light on the dashboard of your life that it's time to look under the hood because something is not working the way it should. And if you don't pay attention to it, it's going to end up in breakdown eventually. So the next question that I think we want to ask of the text, though, is, is if heaven is full of joy, and if we're to be mimicking and, 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 and coming into that joy, then we have to understand what the occasion, why, why is heaven celebrating? What is the occasion for the joy? And it's very simple. In Jesus' editorial comments in verses 7 and verses 10 of the parables that he's told, he says, heaven celebrates repentance. God loves sinners who repent. So much so, Here's the the image that we're given. Every time it happens, heaven stops and throws a party. I don't need to read it again. You can see it in verse 7 and verse 10 there. It's an important point to make at this point. Uh, And and there's an important nuance to bring in at this point too because people have used this prodigal son story to say things like, you see, sin isn't a big deal. God's God of love. Love will win in the end. It'll all be okay. Just don't harp on sin so much. And that's not right. That's not at all the lesson of this story. Heaven doesn't rejoice because sin is not a big deal. Heaven rejoices when sin is overcome through repentance. Heaven celebrates sin defeated. Which is just another way of saying that heaven celebrates grace. Because the big deal in the parable is the father's grace to both his sons. The lost son found may be the guest of honor at the party. But the reason there's a party to begin with is because the father shows grace. That's why they're celebrating. And God's grace doesn't dismiss sin. It defeats sin by producing in the objects of its love repentance. According to the Bible, repentance is a gift. It's something that comes from God and not from us. It's something that God's grace produces in us. So when a sinner repents the way this boy did, heaven celebrates the triumph of God's grace in that person's life. That's why the angels celebrate repentance, because they live to celebrate God. And the word repentance in the Bible just means to turn around. If you've ever been driving... I did this uh, recently uh, in Daytona Beach trying to get on I-4 off of I-95, and it was, we've been all the way from North Carolina, and like home's in sight, right? You're an hour and a half away, and then you miss the exit, and you know you have to go however many miles it is to the next exit, and then get off, and if you want to see me at my absolute worst... You get off the exit seven to 10 miles down from where you should have gotten off and you're counting the minutes that you're losing and then you get off and you have to wait at the light to turn left. That's my absolute worst right there. Actually, it's not because once you turn left, then you got to go up and then you got to wait again to turn left to get back on the interstate. That's my absolute worst right there. And then you get back on and you begin to go back the miles to the right exit and get off on the right exit this time. That's repentance. It literally means you stop going the wrong way, You turn around, and you start going the right way. And that's what the prodigal son did. He was headed away from the father, but then he turned around and he headed toward the father. And what's interesting is that in the other two stories that Jesus tells, it's a little different, and you've got to see this. Take the parable of the lost sheep, for example. There, which is a story about repentance, because we know that because of verse 7. But there, the shepherd goes out after the sheep. He puts the sheep on his shoulder, and he brings it home. And so the repentance of the sheep... Was the work of the shepherd. He brought the sheep home. And it's the same with the woman in the coin. And you could say the same thing about the father, too. The father, the boy didn't come home on his own. Remember, the father ran out to meet him and brought him home. So the lesson there is that repentance is the triumph of God's grace. It's the, it's the culmination of God's work in those he's loved from before the foundation of the earth. And that's why heaven celebrates, because it loves to celebrate God, and we should too. And so one more question then of us, I think, is why does God love repentance so much? Why is it such a big deal? And there are a number of ways that we can answer that question. It really demands a sermon of its own, but for the sake of time, just one thought. And the commentators say that there are traces of the Trinity in these verses. So you have the Father in the parable of the prodigal. Which is, of course, God the Father, and then you have the Shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep, which Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for His sheep in John ten, and then you have the woman uh, in the parable of the lost coin, and there's precedent for seeing uh, that female that female figure as representative of the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity's there, and the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a community of persons eternally delighting in and celebrating one another. Creation, we're told, in our theological systems, is the overflow of that love and joy uh, within the Trinity, which is why the garden in Genesis 1 and 2 is a place of abundance and delight, because the man and the woman were meant to find their joy in God alone and to actually enter into the experience of his joy in himself. But in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. Humanity rebelled against God, and in that rebellion, uh, we see a couple of things. First, we know what it is. It was a search for happiness apart from God which resulted in the loss of of true happiness that is found only in God. And so the happiness within the persons of the Trinity is the source of all happiness in the world. And so every step you take looking for a happiness apart from him is a step away from joy. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, and you say, that sounds painful, no thanks. No, you're walking away from joy. When Jesus says, take my yoke and learn from me, he's inviting you to abundant life, zoe life. Not just bios life. Not just inhaling and exhaling and making it through the day, but life that is really life. And so sin is the suicidal exchange of God's offer of life and freedom and joy for the slavery of serving our own destructive and all consuming appetites and desires. And from God's perspective, human sin is the disruption of his joy. God is still happy within himself, don't get me wrong. But he, listen, isn't this a great thought? Listen to this. God is so happy in himself that he wants to share his joy. He has so much joy in himself he wants to share it, and he has no one to share it with. That's the crisis of sin outside of himself. I mean, don't you know this? When you're you're happy, uh, doesn't it make you even more happy to have someone to share your happiness with? God created us to share his happiness Sin means that there's no one outside of himself to enjoy his happiness with so until, until the sinner repents. And when the sinner and, and when the person who's in sin repents, he's, he's turning back towards the joy that God has and God offers, which is why he loves it so much because he loves all that he's made. And so in Ezekiel 18 he says, "Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? What God wants for all of us repentance is a step towards joy and that's why God celebrates it and it's why we should too which brings us yet again to this elder brother who does not love repentance he refuses to celebrate his brother's repentance which is just another way of saying that he refuses to celebrate his father's grace but why Well, we've already talked about this at length Uh, But to answer that question again, uh, he wants to live in a world where you don't need to repent because you always do the right thing the first time. And he wants to live in a world where if you do happen to mess up, then the solution is just to try harder the next time. But what clearly we're told here is heaven is not impressed with people who live life that way, who don't need any help. And so the righteous, right, The righteous, who always do right, and always do it right, and always have it right, are the ones who miss out on the joy. And in the process, something happens. They become the sour, serious, heavy sort of person that we see in this misfit brother. And so if his problem is that he's taking himself too seriously, as I've said... Well, why? Where does that come from? How, how do you end up in kind of that state of being there? And the answer is that his identity and his self-understanding is based upon his performance and not God's love for sinners. His identity was that he wasn't a sinner. I've slaved for you all these years, he said. Look, I've got a good record. Go check it out. Look at my, look at my personnel file and you'll see I've done it right. I deserve everything coming to me. And that was the way he thought of himself. That was his his identity. And the truth is, every identity factor gives you a joy, but it's a joy that automatically makes you feel superior to others. So, if your identity is that you're a good parent, then you'll automatically feel better than other parents whose kids are a mess. Or if what makes you feel good about yourself is that you follow the rules and that you're more spiritual than everybody else, you're more committed than you'll automatically feel like you're better than all those uncommitted people. And it can be so subtle, okay? Don't, it can be so subtle. You can say, well, I'm a grace person. But then you can go about saying, I'm going to do grace better than anybody else. And you're right back into works. If your identity is based on your performance, you'll get a joy. But it will always be a joy, listen, that excludes Sinners. So a sinner repenting will be a threat. See how ugly this, See how ugly this is. I mean, if a sinner can just repent and be welcomed and celebrated, then what about all the bad stuff they were doing? Does that matter at all? And if all of their bad doesn't matter, then what about all of my good? Does that matter at all? And this is this crisis. So we're talking about works, righteousness here, how you can be right with God. How can you be right with God? If you think the righteousness and rightness with God comes from being right, then you'll need for others to be wrong. And you'll celebrate their wrongness. And that's the disease. That's what's wrong. And, 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 and that's where it all comes from. That's what's wrong with this older brother's soul and, and those Henry, Henri and talked about. But if your identity is based upon the teaching here that we are all infinitely lost and we've all been saved by sheer grace, and now we're in Christ, infinitely loved. That's a joy, you get a joy from that too, but it's a joy that doesn't make you feel superior to anybody else, and it doesn't exclude anybody else because it's all based upon grace. We're saved by grace. The rightness we need, uh, the Christian gospel says, doesn't come from us, it's a gift that Jesus Christ lived an obedient life and died an obedient death as a sacrifice for our sins to make us right with God. That's our gospel. We contributed nothing, so Christianity is not about you. Can I say that again? If you're a Christian, Christianity is not about you. It has nothing to do with you. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was your wrongness. I mean, think about that. Your very best doesn't get you in. Your very worst can't keep you out. Stop taking yourself so seriously. You with me? Hello? Hello? That's an amen moment right there, people. That, that, I, that, we should just feed our souls on that for a minute. And so the grace of God results in a moral life, but not in moral gravitas. And there's a difference. Obedience to Jesus is not a heavy yoke. And so let me ask this question that I've asked a couple of other times before. Do you love that God loves sinners? Do you love, do you love that God is a God of grace? Do you live with an overwhelming sense that your sins are no match for the grace that he shows to you in Jesus Christ? If so, then in truth, you won't take yourself so seriously and you won't take the sins of others so seriously either. God's grace will be the big deal, not sin. God is the big deal, amen? You with me? God is the big deal, not you. God's grace is the big deal, not your sin, not my sin, not any of that stuff. And that's the way it should be. And when that happens, two things will happen to you. You'll become a confessor, which is just another way of saying that you'll learn to finally laugh at yourself. Wouldn't that be great? You'll live fully in the light. You won't have to defend yourself all the time. You'll live joyfully weak. And at the same time, you'll become a forgiver when it comes to the sins of other people. You'll become a confessor when it comes to your sins. You'll become a forgiver when it comes to the sins of other people. And like God is, and that, beloved, is the freedom and the joy, call it whatever you want, that is missing in this older brother. So hear me, if the church is made up of righteous people who have right theology and always do the right thing, then let's get to work. Amen, you with me? But if the church is made up of repentant sinners who keep screwing it up and finding grace, then let's party. The gospel, the good news that God loves sinners in Jesus Christ, creates a people who are constantly celebrating God's grace, a people who know how to throw a party. And that's the last thing, is the expression of joy. The Father throws a feast. Verse 24, they begin to celebrate, it says. Maybe, maybe it's because it's the week of Thanksgiving, but I wanted to expand on that just a bit to say, if life is grace... And if everything is gift, then we should go through life feasting and celebrating because it glorifies God. It's actually a really important thing in the Bible. Part of the religious life of Israel in the Old Testament were appointed party times. Where everybody stopped work and they all got together because sometimes joy is something you have to practice. In other words, you don't celebrate on... Sometimes you don't celebrate this coming Thursday because you have joy and you feel joy, sometimes you celebrate to find joy. You celebrate to feel the joy. Because life can be hard and it can get busy. So it's easy to fall back into works. This is the default mode of the human heart. And, and so you need reminders that you live a given life. God knows this. And so three times a year, he commanded his people to get together and party. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy. <laughs> Spend money on whatever you desire... Food and wine and strong drink and whatever your appetites crave and eat before the Lord your God and rejoice. That's in the Bible, people. And it's a strategy against becoming like the older brother. So, remember, you're doing the Lord's work eating that turkey on Thanksgiving, okay? And come Wednesday night, and we'll talk about that more to get our hearts ready for that day, because it really is, it really is a great occasion for us to enter into the joy of those who, are, who, who know that all, all of life is grace. And so who is the person who lives with the joy of heaven? It's not the righteous person who always has to do it right and make sure everybody else is doing it right too, the, mor- the morality police. It is the repentant sinner who's been welcomed home by sheer grace. The question is, which are you? A friend of mine, just to finish up, a friend of mine told a story a long time ago, and it just has, uh, there's a number of us know it, and if you've heard it before, forgive me, but i got to trot it back out every now and then. Uh, but uh, he was a pastor I worked with, Ted Sin, who's a pastor I worked with over in Lakeland for a number of years. Uh, his wife went away on the weekend, and you guys know that when moms go away on the weekend, it's like no holes barred in the house, right? I mean, all hell breaks loose, really. And so his daughter came to him, uh, at some point during mom had been gone for you know a day or so or whatever and uh, his little girl one of, I don't remember which one it was but uh, she came to me sitting down she said what that mail let me translate what's that smell okay and so and so he said well I, don't, I think it was Riley Riley I, I don't what, I don't know what let's go find out and so they start to go around all the different rooms in every room they go, go into uh, she keeps saying what that that mail what that mail? They go in and check the, you know, the garbage in the kitchen is not that, and go around check see if there's anything. And he said, he said at some point it dawned on him, mom had been gone, like I said, for a while, and that he was pretty sure that she had been living on a diet of Slim Jims for the last 24 hours. So he said, so he said, Riley, why, uh, do this, put your hands like this and blow. And she did it. And she said, that mail. And it's an important lesson. That's what self-righteousness is like. Uh, You don't know you have it. It's like bad breath. And the problem is, is that when you do have it, the whole world seems to smell. And it's so easy to sniff out the shortcomings and the sins of everybody else around you. And you can begin to think that everybody and everyone else stinks when in reality, guess what? It's you. So heed the warning of the story. Heed the warning of this of this older brother who's presented to us here, um, and and flee from uh, that that characterization of that type of person that that Henri Nouwen describes, and, and flee to the arms of the Father, waiting to welcome all who trust and rely upon His grace. Charles Wesley, in an old hymn called "O Thou Who Hast Our Sorrow's Born," says this. He says, "Lord." Give us eyes of faith to see the man tra- transfixed on Calvary, to know thee who thou art, the one eternal God and true, and let the sight, affect, subdue, and break my stubborn heart. That's what we need. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? So, Father, just that, would you give us eyes of faith to see the wonder of the Lord Jesus upon a cross? Dying there for our sins because He loves us, and in seeing Him there to know You as You truly are, as a God of infinite grace and mercy and patience towards those of us who can't just seem to get our act together, and we pray that that sight would affect, that it would, uh, that it would move our hearts and subdue us and like a chisel to pound and break through the hard-heartedness that we can live with Uh, the shame toward our own sins uh, the judgmentalism towards others and would instead it subdue our stubborn hearts to the wonder and the reality of your grace so that we might begin to show grace to ourselves those of us who've put our faith in Jesus but also grace to one another and might find the kind of joy that if we could learn it would sing to the world of your greatness and your goodness and we begin to evangelize uh, through that joy that's what we hope and pray for and so come uh, even now as we sing the song together do that in us we pray may our response be joy and, may, and for some of us may it just come out of nowhere produce it in us holy spirit give us this fruit of joy and celebration not just on on Thanksgiving Day in a few days, but even now in these moments we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's the thing: if you're hearing you're not a Christian, you're saying, "Look, I, I'm I'm going to figure out. I'm trying to find a joy that has nothing to do with God. Every step you take away from Him is a step away from joy. Turn, repent. That's what that word means. Turn and come home. Come to Him. You'll find Him with arms ready to welcome and receive you. But if you're a Christian, don't stop repenting, because there's the joy is on the other side of repentance every time. And so Uh, The the more you grow in your faith, it's not that you have less to repent of. You actually have more and more and more to repent of, which means there's more and more and more joy because no matter what the height or depth or length of your sin, uh, these words are true of your Father always because Jesus has purchased the truth of them for you. So receive these words. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you His peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Now go and celebrate.